probably been aware of what an advertising agency launched in Fort Lauderdale, Florida sometime past. It launched a billboard campaign that included 17 messages from God. Have you seen any of those? Billboards are completely black and white letters and then God at the very bottom. An anonymous client paid for this rather massive uh, campaign to deliver messages from God that he felt like God would say to motorists along America's highways. Perhaps you have seen one or two of them. The first one that I remember seeing said, uh, let's meet at my house Sunday before the game. You seen that one? Another one said, have you read my number one bestseller? There will be a test. I saw one that uh, read, what part of thou shalt not didn't you understand? Pretty interesting. Uh, I I liked this one. Love the wedding. Now invite me to the marriage. It makes me think, if I were God and wanted to deliver a unique one-line message to the 21st century Christian living in, or unbeliever, living in Kentucky or California or, or Cary, what one sentence would I write? What would I say? Surely the chief shepherd of the church wants to communicate to his bride, especially those hurtling down I-440, right? Darius, uh, the Persian uh, emperor, was so concerned that news would travel quickly around his kingdom that uh, he built a network of roads uh, paved and leveled them. They crisscrossed between the major cities in his empire. They were called highways, because they were literally higher than the ground around them due to the elevation by those stone pavers that was created. The Romans would later perfect the road system with their own network. In fact, it was so extensive that the saying, all roads lead to Rome, uh, was circulated in the first century. In Darius's day and in Rome's, the, the common people weren't allowed on the highway unless they could pay a toll. If they couldn't, couldn't afford it, they used the low way or the byway, oftentimes referred to simply as the hedges. And that was the cart path that ran alongside the, below the highway. It was unlevel. It was difficult to manage, often having to veer away because of rocks and and trees. I have read that uh, it, it could take someone driving a cart on the low way three months to cover what a horse and rider could cover on the highway in one day. By the way, when Jesus Christ told his followers in Luke 14, 23 to invite everyone on the highway and the byway or the low way, what he was actually saying was go invite all the wealthy who can pay the toll and go invite all the poor who can't to the kingdom. The Persians, I found it interesting, designed a a postal system that was complex and effective. In fact, the Persian courier could could cover 250 miles a day with postal stations designed every 15 miles where he could get a a fresh horse, gallop on to his final address. Herodotus, uh, the Greek historian, was so impressed by the Persian mail system that he coined the well-known phrase that is engraved on the general post office in New York City. It goes like this, neither snow nor rain nor heat or gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. You may not be sure that today's postal system is following the Persian passion, but there it is. 
By the first century, the postal system of Rome was so developed that a courier could literally cover 500 miles in one day. In the days of the Apostle John, there were seven postal districts in the province of Asia. And in each, there was a church that was about to receive a unique personal letter from God. It wouldn't be written in one sentence and they didn't have billboards. It would be delivered by divine transmission to the apostle John, exiled on an island and sent by messenger through, through that postal district of Asia Minor. In fact, the order of the, the letters written in Revelation, interestingly enough, follow the circular path of those seven postal districts in first century Rome. All of those letters could arrive at those seven churches on the same day. Now, before we open uh, the first letter in Revelation chapter 2 and read it for ourselves, let me make some general observations about these seven letters. First, these are open letters. It's, it's like they're mailed without an envelope. Everybody can read them, even the mailman. Uh, they're specifically written to a particular church, but every church can benefit. In fact, it was intended for every church to circulate these letters and apply their truths. And that's still true to this day. Uh, Colonial can discover herself in Ephesus and Pergamum and, and Smyrna and Laodicea. Uh, we can be encouraged by these first century letters and we can be warned as well. Secondly, you need to know that these letters are not anonymous letters. There's no question who delivered the content to John. Each letter begins with the signature of Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. If you work backward into chapter 1, you discover, as we already have, that, that this is the the person of God the Son, the I Am, who delivers this truth. And each letter will begin by pulling one of those phrases from chapter 1 and reintroducing it at the beginning of the letters in chapters 2 and 3. Look down at verse 8. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Again, Jesus Christ signs his name to the letter. These letters are not hit-and-run incidents. This isn't some ornery, anonymous mail that you read and you try to forget because you can't respond to the author. I don't know about if you ever have, but I regularly receive anonymous mail from people who hate the church or hate some stand that we've taken or even every once in a while somebody will tell me they hate me. If you can imagine that, I'm so lovable and... Before I even open the envelope, I can tell it's anonymous. There's no return address. The envelope is typed, white paper inside, typed, and no signature. It's always a great way to start the day. (laughs) I'm encouraged to remember that Charles Spurgeon, the well-known pastor of London in the 1800s, received by courier every Monday morning an anonymous letter written criticizing the sermon he delivered the day before. For years, every Monday. D.L. Moody, the founder of uh, the Bible Institute that is still 
churning out servants of Christ today. And the church where thousands of people attended, he was once sitting on the platform during a morning worship service when an usher came and delivered to him uh, a piece of paper folded over. He opened it and it simply read one word, fool. He folded the letter back and sat there until it was time for him to preach. I read how he got up, he opened the note and said, I have just received a note from someone today which simply reads, fool. Of course, the audience gasped. Then Moody went on to say, and I quote him, I have often received mail where the person has written me a message without signing their name. However, this time someone has signed his name (laughs) without writing a message. I've always wanted to do that. Would somebody send me a note that says, fool, if I can get up and do that? Well, in a matter of 24 hours, seven churches will receive the letter of their lives, and it isn't some anonymous, ornery letter. It is from Christ with a purpose. Number three, each letter follows the same pattern. They all begin with a characteristic of Christ, Next, there is a compliment or two from Christ. Third, there is criticism from Christ. And finally, there is correction or a challenge from Christ. You can almost think, as I have thought, that that Christ has his own personal style of writing letters. And this is his style. It's a great pattern, by the way, to follow as individuals, when you review your employees or uh, your children, it's compliment and then criticism and then corrective measure to follow. One more observation. Even though these letters are addressed to churches, they are for the self-examination of every Christian, individual Christian. After reading the letter to the Ephesian church that we'll read in a moment, we, wouldn't, we, we, we shouldn't say, well, you know, that, that church lost its love for Christ. No, it is, Lord, have the coals of my heart's love for you grown dark and, and cold. After reading the letter to the church in Sardis, we should ask ourselves individually, Lord, am I awake Am I alert? After reading the letter to Laodicea, we we should ask, Lord, am I so captured by my culture that I have actually become comfortable with sin? These letters have both church-wide implications and personal applications. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, don't miss the fact that this revelation has now been attributed not only to God the Father and God the Son, but here now, God the Spirit. The triune God is involved in his church. And the Spirit brings the invitation at the end of each letter. The phrase appears in every one of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear. Chapter 2, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse Uh, 6, verse 13, and verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What an odd phrase for the English reader. 
He doesn't say, he that hath good hearing. No, he that hath an ear. Now, you might have rushed here. You barely made it. You got the kids ready, shoved them in headfirst into the minivan, got here, and you realize halfway here, you forgot your Bible. How many of you remembered your Bibles? Let me see. Okay, the rest of you forgot them, all right? You you realized halfway here, you forgot it. Oh, my goodness. Maybe you forgot to shave and didn't realize it until you just pulled into the church parking lot. Maybe, maybe you got here and you realized you forgot your glasses or, or your contact lenses. We don't forget our ears. They, they, they stay with us. He that hath an ear, let him hear, is the biblical way of asking, are you listening? Are you listening to what the Spirit has to say? Not so much do you have ears, but are you using them. In fact, it isn't really referring to hearing with your physical ear. It's really talking about hearing with your heart. Having a submissive heart and a willing mind. These letters will test that kind of hearing with the heart. Ladies and gentlemen, this mail is for you and me. And it's from God. And to the church... In Ephesus, Jesus Christ will begin with four wonderful compliments. Before he tells them what they're doing wrong, he'll tell them what they're doing right. And again, this is a great pattern for the home, for the job, in the classroom where you teach. Commend first, then correct. And here are four things he says that you are doing right in in Ephesus. First of all, he commends their diligence. Notice verse 2, I know your deeds. The church in Ephesus was energetic. It was active. It was bustling with activity. It matched its, the dedication of its citizens to Diana, their chief goddess. Her temple was amazing. I have read it was one of the seven wonders of the world. In fact, it was so amazing that Alexander the Great said, look, I'll give you all of my loot from all of my eastern campaigns, if you will just inscribe my name on that temple. He was refused. The temple stood on a platform measuring 100,000 square feet, bigger than two football fields, supported by over 100 pillars. Now, unlike many columns of the ancient, these buildings, you'll notice they're, they're constructed by several blocks piled on top. Till they create the column, not these. These were all carved, each of them individually from one rock. Monoliths, 55 feet tall. At the end of this magnificent temple, overlaid with gold and jewels and intricate carvings, was an inner shrine where uh, the form, this carving, they believe fell from heaven, of, of Diana, was worshipped. Behind her were vaults, which served as the bank of Asia Minor. In fact, historians considered the temple of Diana the bank of England. Everything revolved around the temple uh, to Diana. 
People came from all over to buy Ephesian charm letters they'd wear as bracelets. It had supposedly some kind of magical power, these little charms, spiritual power, much like people today who buy crystals and hang them on their rearview mirror, believing it has some sort of magical energy flow through them. We are no less superstitious a people than the Ephesians. You may remember the trade unions rioting when Paul delivered the gospel there in that city, in the Ephesian city. Many were converted. A leading craftsman named Demetrius said, very upset, not only is there danger that our trade will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana be regarded as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worships, will be dethroned from her magnificence. Acts chapter 19, verse 27. They started a riot. The city piled into that outdoor theater in Ephesus, which sat more than 25,000 people. And for two hours, they chanted, Great is Diana of Ephesus. Great is Diana of Ephesus. They were committed to their religion. Now Paul, who stayed in Ephesus longer than any other city, won many of them to Christ Timothy would later come and pastor this church. John the Apostle, tradition believes, not only pastored but wrote the Gospel of John while working in this church before he was exiled to Patmos. These new believers filled the ranks of this church and they were as committed and dedicated to Jesus Christ as they had once been to the goddess Diana. Jesus Christ commends their diligence. Secondly, He commends further their determination. Verse 2 again, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. The word toil is from kapos. It refers not just to work, but working to the point of physical exhaustion. The word for perseverance is a word that refers to bearing up under difficult circumstances. Trying time. Jesus Christ says, listen, I know everything about all of the difficulties you are facing, not just as a church, but as individuals. And I see your determination to press on, and I commend you for that. Uh, Further, Christ commends them for disciplining the unrepentant sinner and false teacher. Again, verse 2, you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. Boy, how how thrilled Paul would have been to hear this commendation from Christ. Paul is already with the Lord. This church that he had planted had kept their theological truths intact. They'd kept the faith undiluted. They'd kept the gospel unpolluted. Paul had specifically given this church in Ephesus... His farewell warning before he left them and later was executed by Nero, he wrote, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Acts chapter 20. So here we are. Sixty years later, 
And Christ commends the church for the, their discipline of the immoral man and the charlatan, uh, the depraved are removed for their unwillingness to repent of sin. And deceived teachers are, are, are put to the test of truth and they are found lacking. And they're removed. Later in this letter, the Lord mentions the purifying activity in verse 6. Look down there. He says, yet... This you do have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice, you do not hate the Nicolaitans. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who were they? Some scholars believe they were followers of Nicholas, one of the seven men chosen in Acts chapter 6 to distribute to the needy those that many believe would form the first diaconate or deacon. Whatever their origin, what they believed was well documented. They basically compromised their their faith and testimony in order to indulge in sinful practices in Ephesus. They argued that the believer could dabble in idolatry. You know, you could buy the charms, you you could visit the temple, uh, you could participate in Caesar worship. Let's not raise a ruckus. You know, let's let's not be that different. Let's, Let's fit in. They also allowed for sexual activity outside of marriage. Basically, they said you could be a Christian and and live and act like the unbeliever. Does that sound familiar? Do you know someone who says they are a Christian, but they pursue the idols of culture and its lust for power and prestige and material things, and they, they compromise and then defend their sexual activity outside of marriage as something certainly that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Jesus Christ, look here at verse 6, commends this church for hating that lifestyle, and he adds surprising words, I hate that too. Can you imagine doing something that you defend but hearing Christ say, I hate that. I despise what you're doing. This letter was written to you and to me. Clement of Alexandria, a church father living 75 years after this letter was delivered to Ephesus, said, the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading lives of self-indulgence. And Jesus Christ said, this church, you you want to be different and distinctive and pure. I commend that. He goes on to praise this body of believers not only for their diligence and determination and discipline, but for their devotion. John records the words of Christ in verse 3, And you have perseverance and and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. You, You haven't quit. Why? Did you notice back there? For my name's sake. Not for your name's sake. Not, not so that everybody would know about your church. Oh, you're that church in Ephesus. Oh, you're the church founded by the Apostle Paul and pastored by Timothy. And, and John's a member of your church, the great inspired writer and author of the gospel. You are the only church in the New Testament to which two apostles addressed letters. You are the church. No. No, don't miss this. You've done all this for the name of Jesus Christ, the one you worship who is the first and the last, the one who was dead and is now alive, the A to Z, 
the living, almighty God. Now, after all that, commending them for their diligence and their determination and their discipline and their devotion, Christ says in verse 4, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. That's all he says. What does he mean? Well, a clue is provided later in verse 5 where the Lord provides correction. When he says, here's what you're to do, uh, first, remember where you've fallen. Secondly, repent. Thirdly, do the deeds you did at first. You could draw a circle around that first and draw a line back to first love. I think it's a clue. It's the same Greek word. Do the deeds you did at first. Love like you loved at first. Which then led me to ask the question, what was the church in Ephesus doing in their early days? What were they like in those early years? Well, Paul wrote to them the book of Ephesians where he said, I have heard of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ which exists among you and I have heard of your love for all the saints. See, the early church in Ephesus was known for its work of faith, its courage of faith, its love for Christ and and the body of Christ, its love for the saints. It was losing that. Listen, a a church which ages is most, most likely to resist taking steps of what? Steps of faith. It can also cool in its zeal and love for Christ and for one another. The church here in Revelation 2 is about 60 years old. It's, it's beginning to cool. It has a, a past of faith. What are they stepping forward to try now for the cause of Christ? I was very interested in reading what Ray Stedman had to write on this paragraph in Revelation. He pastored Peninsula Bible Church in California for over 40 years. One church, he's now with the Lord. I wanted to hear what he had to say about this particular challenge. He writes, how easy it is over time to become mechanical, routine, dull. He's talking about the church. Uh, You listen to the Word of God or to some powerful sermon or to the testimony of a fellow believer and you feel, I've heard it already. You become critical of others. You become complainers. You become more selective in your friendships, singling out only those who match your thinking, your level, your status. Your needs become more and more important in your thinking, and the result is division and schism. We become focused on ourselves, our own agenda, our own programs, our own interests. The frightening thing is that there is nothing particularly unique about the Ephesian crisis. We have all been Ephesian in our faith at one time or another, and the light of the church can flicker, falter, and fail. What's the answer? Here's the correction in verse 5. Three verbs 
You ought to circle them. First, the word remember. Remember from where you've fallen. The problem began with our minds straying from the truth and our bodies followed. So begin the battle in the mind all over again. Remember, remember who you are in Christ. Remember the power of the gospel which saved you. Go back to the beginning, those early years. Remember your perverse heart and the need to depend on Jesus Christ every day. Remember your sensitivity to sin. Listen, this is great and godly advice, not only for the church, but in its effort to rekindle the coals of love for Christ and the saints, but for every husband and wife. It's great advice. Husbands, remember what life was like without her. Wives, remember what life was like without him. You're thinking peaceful. (laughs) Remember the gift that she was from God. Remember how you made it through those early years without two nickels to rub together. You're thinking, now I got two nickels. But at least you've got two nickels. Go back in your mind and remember. One of God's solutions for Israel over and over and over again was for them to just remember. We forget. Remember what mattered most then. Second verb, you'll see it there, is the word repent. Repent. Stop wandering. Turn your back on sin. Stop calling it something else, like the Nicolaitans. Refuse to ignore pride or excuse lust. Walk away from those material pursuits of your Ephesian culture. Take your hand off the back door. Refuse to accept any rationale for divorce. Stop flirting with adultery. Repent. Do an about face. That's what the word means. You're walking toward the the world and, and, and the light is flickering and it may fail. Stop. Turn around. Retrace your steps. Walk in the opposite direction. Third verb, do. Do the deeds which you did at first. This would be a demonstration of true repentance, wouldn't it? Pursue your relationship with Christ. Make him the priority in your thinking. Tomorrow when you get up, begin a conversation with him that starts and stops and starts and stops, but it just sort of continues throughout the day. Return to some of those activities. Some of you could tell me about what you used to do in your other church. You used to be involved. What are you doing now? Well, I'm just sitting. I'm, I'm here. You can tell me about a past. You can, you, could, you can tell me of a ministry. You can tell me of your prayer life. You can tell me how you engaged in the deeds that honored God. But now, well, that was my past. The coals are growing cold. Here's the warning to the church in Ephesus, and it chills my blood every time I read it. Verse 5 includes those ominous words, do this or else. Or else. I will remove your lampstand out of its place 
Simply put, no love, no light. The candlestick represents the testimony of the church shining into the community. Now listen carefully. While Jesus Christ promised to build his church universal, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he does not guarantee any individual congregation some kind of permanence or effective ministry because of their past. Listen, today there is no evangelical witness from a church in Ephesus. We happen to have thousands of towns in America today without one effective church preaching the gospel, reaching their community with the light of the gospel. There are church buildings, there are congregations, but no light. There are budgets and and, and, and potlucks, but no love for Christ and his gospel and no love beyond the superficial for one another. And they're going to meet. They will meet today in this city, ladies and gentlemen, in this county. They will turn on the lights, but Jesus Christ would say, you have no spiritual light. Your lampstand was taken away years ago. It, It might have been at a board meeting where evangelism got nixed as too controversial. We don't want to offend people. Let's stop that program. Maybe it was a congregational meeting where the members voted out a pastor for preaching salvation through Christ alone. And and with him went the lampstand. Maybe it was a pastor who preached that it was time to open the membership of the church to the sexually immoral. And Jesus Christ effectively said, you do that, and the lampstand's gone. Maybe it was a ladies' meeting that, where they sat and gossiped about the newest family in the church. Maybe, maybe it was the, the teen leader who took the kids to the beach, and several of them and the youth leader got drunk, and nobody did anything about it. I'm giving you things that I am, I am aware of just in the last month. Not our teen leader. I just want to make sure you understand that, by the way. It just hit me that that could be miscommunicated. These are all real situations. Maybe it was one of a thousand churches surveyed not too long ago when asked, listen to this, what is the mission of your church? And 90% of them responded with answers that basically and categorically declared the church exists to serve my family and the needs of my family. In other words, the church exists for me. It's for me. Our first love for Christ has turned inward. Our first deeds for others have turned inward. We now love ourselves. We now serve ourselves. And Christ says, look, if you won't remember, and if you won't repent, and if you won't repeat, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand. You can carry on without me. And I wonder... I wonder how long it would take the average church before they realized their lampstand was gone and they had no light. I don't hear Christ speaking with anger here, by the way. I hear grief in this or else. I hear great sadness. Today, nothing is left of the church in Ephesus but a memory 
and a letter and a warning. Do you have ears to hear? Are we listening? Christ closes in verse 7 with a reminder for those who love him and repent that they are overcomers. It's a term for believers. Their inheritance is heaven. That includes a new heaven and a new earth. Referred to here as paradise or literally the garden where they will one day have intimate communion with God just like Adam and Eve once had. Eating from the tree of life. Revelation, we'll talk about that and we'll look at that more later. But that tree will yield its fruit every month. Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. Let me quickly make some closing observations from this letter to Ephesus and us. Number one, it's possible to be busy for God without being a blessing for God. In other words, it's possible to have religious efforts without redemptive effects. It's possible to have sacred activity without any spiritual value, where we get involved in church work and we miss the work of the church, which is to glorify our God, love one another, and reach our world as we grow up in Him. Number two, it's possible to be persevering for for orthodoxy and not have the power of deity. Paul would write to the Corinthians, if I have the gifts of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith and I give my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it is worthless. Defend the faith, yes. Hold strong your doctrine and however know all the while the Lord may be saying to us, I'm coming, I'm going to take away your lampstand, not because of what you believe but because of how you behave. Toward one another and toward me. You behave without love. Third, it's possible to have a lofty reputation outside the church without loving relationships inside the church. Friends, it is possible to hide behind a reputation and a smattering of good deeds. Christ began this letter, and by the way, he will begin every one of these letters with those words, I know. I know. I know all about you. I found it interesting to read how a few years ago on New Year's Day, the annual Tournament of Roses parade was being telecast to millions of viewers, as always, and suddenly a beautiful float sputtered and and uh, stalled right in front of the cameras. The designers and workers had meticulously cared for every detail. It was, it was a, a beautiful float. But they had forgotten one thing. Gasoline. The whole parade was held up until someone could get a, a gas can. Solve the problem. Millions of people saw it. The irony of it all, the float represented the Standard Oil Company. There it was with the company logo representing incredible resources and the truck pulling the float had run out of gas. (laughs) I couldn't help but think, you know, ladies and gentlemen, listen, listen, we represent, we represent the blazing glory of God. We, 
We represent Shekinah glory. We represent the light of the world. And our light can flicker and, and fade away. Is this an issue of salvation? No, no. This is written to Christians. It's possible to have a redeemed soul and a wasted life. It's possible for a church to have an effective past without a a prospective or productive future. So what do we do? Remember. Remember the priority of your love. Rekindle the coals that lie dormant from lack of attention and discipline and conviction. Remember where you left them. Repent. Do an about-face. Admit your need for rekindled devotion to God. Repent. Get rid of stuff that pours water on the coals of your heart's love for Christ. Take steps today. Today. Some of you may need to burn some bridges in your life that just might start a fire again in your heart. Repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. Start over where you veered off the road. Track your way back. Solicit help of godly friends who will be honest with you. Trace the footprints that lead you back home and start over again. You know, it strikes me that Christ did not reproach this church for having to go back and start over. I love that of Christ. In fact, I'm convinced that the Christian life is filled with starting over again and again and again and again and again. Remember, repent, return. It just might save your marriage. It just might save your home. It just might save your testimony. Listen, it just might save your church. Father, you have written this letter to us. And stop our ears by your grace and mercy and your goodness which leads to repentance. Rekindle the coals of love for you and for others. Thank you.